In my previous podcast, I argued that the tank is not obsolete as a tool of modern warfare. But what about other systems? What about combat aviation? That's what we will discuss this time in the ancient art of modern warfare. Welcome to the Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, and at one time anyway, instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College and Naval War College. This series of podcasts introduces enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace, and particularly now, when the world is engaged in war again. In the last episode, I discussed that although we have seen repeated video clips, YouTubes, of Russian tanks being destroyed by various means or dragged off on the battlefield by farmers engaged in grand theft tank, that the tank is not obsolete as a weapon of modern warfare. This time, I'm going to expand that. I'm going to drive on from that, and we're going to talk about whether other aspects of conventional war, and especially combat aviation, and particularly, although not exclusive to, combat helicopters, including attack helicopters. Can they still operate in the face of modern man-portable and other air defense systems, or are they being replaced in their utility by UAVs, that is, unmanned aerial vehicles? To do that, I'll be joined by Colonel Retired Jason Eltieri, United States Army Aviation, and currently an instructor at the Air War College. As before, when Colonel Altieri has joined me, his comments don't necessarily reflect those of the Air War College, nor do mine of the Army War College, where I am now also working as a course administrator. So, Jason, welcome back to the Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. In the last uh, episode, we talked about uh, tank warfare and how just like every day uh, you can see on on YouTube or uh, Twitter or uh, another uh, social media site, you know, Russian tanks being destroyed by, by UAVs dropping bombs, by attack helicopters, by N-laws and javelins. And it almost makes it sound like uh, tanks kind of useless, useless on the battlefield. And I addressed that and said, eh, it's not so much the tank is the way it's being used. But we also see almost on a daily basis, Russian helicopters being shot down. And most commonly I see are the, the Ka-50, Ka-52s, what we used to call Hokums in the in the NATO world, uh, although they've lost quite a few Havocs Mi-28s as well. So, uh, in, with that and the proliferation of what we do see as UAVs on both sides, what's the role of attack helicopters? Are they actually are, are they actually useful on the battlefield, uh, or are they just targets? Chris, that's a great question, and, I, and I'm my going in position is there's always a use for combat helicopters on the battlefield. The question is. How are you using it in such a way that your tactics, your survivability equipment, and your objectives mare up with both the aircraft capability and what the threat is? And quite honestly, it's very possible that the Russians just have to have a very high learning curve and got maybe even got lazy in their tactics until they, they came up with essentially another Western opponent who is using guided missiles, who are using anti-tank weapons or UASs to their advantage. Uh, honestly, even though we are seeing these losses of Ka-52s, and some of them are significant, as was mentioned the other day, Forbes reported 
that 4K 52s were shot down within like an 18 minute period, that may be due more to poor tactics and planning rather than the lack of a utility value for an attack helicopter. Well, you mentioned about uh, yeah, with the technical capabilities and the threats that they're there. And that brings up the uh, what I brought up with tank warfare is the quality of the pilot. You know, from what I've seen, you know, we've te- we've trained for a long, long time in aviation using nap of the earth techniques and uh, different hide and hide and shoot and pop up and, and go around kinds of things. But whenever I've seen one of these video clips of a Russian helicopter being shot down, I, it, it's not even like terrain following. It's kind of like just contour flying. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up as well. So when this thing, when this war first started. Um, in the early in February and March, that first Russian air assault on uh, Hostomel initially right. uh, had a lot of initial operational success. Uh, the Russian air assault troops did manage to be inserted into the LZ uh, using that combination, which in some ways it was textbook Russian tactics, large scale helicopter operations with jamming uh, included and some seed to avoid uh, Ukrainian air defenses, but eventually they were driven off. And simply because aircraft like the Ka-52 for pilots who are using that aircraft in a hovering mode to engage targets made them very vulnerable to man-pad systems and, a- and anti-tank guided missile systems. If, if, you don't, if you don't have a better understanding of how the terrain and your tactics can help you avoid that, you will, learn very, you will learn soon enough when you see your wingman going down in flames a few hundred yards from you. It reminds me of uh, something when I went through, I think it was the Armor Officer Advanced Course, getting a briefing from the Air Force, uh, where we were talking about the different uh, qualities of, of course, Air Force jet aircraft and what was better than what. And his bottom line was hamburgers, hamburger, it doesn't matter how you wrap it. You know, you can have the best aviation system in the world, but if you've got hamburger for pilots, they're not going to survive. Absolutely. And, and it's important to remember that I think a lot of pundits who, who don't either fly attack helicopter or combat helicopters, I'll use that combat helicopter term more often, until somebody develops an engine that can lift a helicopter with the equivalent of tank, of, of tank armor, helicopters are always going to be vulnerable to all sorts of weapon systems. In fact, I could bring out a World War II era .50 caliber machine gun and do significant damage to a modern helicopter, unlike, say, a tank. So really, it comes down to how you employ your tactics, your countermeasures, really, and the situational awareness the pilot needs to have of the battle space. Jason, you served in combat aviation in both Iraq and in Afghanistan. So can you give me a perspective about what you see in terms of the Russian use of helicopters in Ukraine versus our own use and our losses in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, so that's an interesting, that's an interesting take I have on it. So I did serve both in Iraq and Afghanistan. When I served in Iraq in 2005, we were still very much concerned about the Iraqi insurgents using man pads and we adapted our tactics very quickly to using nap of the earth uh, to using all of our countermeasures quite frankly we had to lose a few helicopters to remind ourselves of some of the lessons that we had lost 
in Vietnam. We had losses in Afghanistan, very similar to that. What was interesting about both those wars is, unless you found yourself in a situation where you knew the enemy was probably in an area, we tended to focus on low-level contour flying rather than nap of the earth when we felt the threat was low, but when it was high, we adapted very quickly to go back to NOE type flight modes. Yeah. Now, as I remember uh, during the Cold War in Germany, you know, I was in cavalry units and they were 50% armor and 50% aviation. And the idea was, is that when you are outside of enemy direct fire range, what you perceive as being enemy direct fire range, then you would do contour flying or even just low level flying. Uh, then as you would get closer, then you would, then you would actually, when you're in a combat zone, then you transition to nap of the earth. And I know that when I was running around in, uh, in armored vehicles, I never saw our helicopters higher than treetop level. No, absolutely. And if, as you mentioned that, I think about my time was a, as a young lieutenant and captain flying OH-58, a scout, the original Alpha Charlie models, not the later D models, we would do a, a, a red team, pink team, where we would fly ahead of Cobra helicopters. And to find the enemy, we would use the, the terrain masking as much as possible, pop up for probably no more than five to 10 seconds and drop the aircraft down and then maneuver to another location. I, I've seen videos and I've seen some news reports of Russian helicopters hovering stationary to engage long range targets for what, at least for me, what appears to be like 30 or 40 seconds, making them incredibly vulnerable to any type of ATGM band pads or any type of laser guided weapon on the back of a pickup truck. Now I'm going to stop for just a moment here because you and I have both used the terms, uh, nap of the earth, terrain following contour flying. And most of the people who are listening to us probably don't know those terms and um, where I'm at fault for bringing them up before explaining them first. Could you please explain the typical modes for helicopters on the battlefield? Let's start with nap of the earth first. Uh, it's a type of very low level or low altitude flight course. Uh, and it's used by military aircraft to avoid enemy detection um, and attack or, or, and or attack in a high threat environment. And really for lack of a better term, it's ground hugging, it's terrain masking, it's flying under the radar. If you will allow me to use a dated term, it's hedge hopping. I bring, I use the helicopter's capabilities and both, both in the human domain of a pilot flying the aircraft and the sensors on the aircraft to help me avoid things like radio towers, wires, trees, anything else that could cause a catastrophic mishap that not only provides you with masking and survivability, it also allows you to pop up at any given time, particularly aircraft like the OH-58 Delta, which had a, a rotor mass mounted radar to pop up and see a target quickly, mark it, and then drop back down and move to another lo location. Okay, so that's nap of the earth. Okay, then what's yes. the, the next, what, lower the level? Next, the next one is, con now, the next one is contour, Contour flying still allows the helicopter to have some level of some degree of protection, not a lot, but instead of flying closer to the ground, anywhere from, I don't know, 50 feet and below, you're usually up anywhere between around 100 to 200 feet, 
and you are following the terrain, but what that allows you to do is move a lot faster across the battle space rather than that NOE flying. Okay, so the NOE flying is a lot slower because you're, you're trying to, rather than maximize the mobility of the helicopter in forward motion, you're maximizing its maneuverability laterally and in low level. Yes, okay. and let's not forget, it's also more stressful for the pilot to be, even with the most advanced sensors, it's also stressful for the pilot at NOE. At flying with contour flying, yes, my head's still on a swivel. Yes, I'm still looking for enemy threats and any type of environmental threats, but it doesn't put the same workload on a pilot in, in, a, in that type of environment. Yeah. Is there another level of flying that we want? Yeah, so you also have low-level flight. Um, it, and, and that really depends, for lack of a better term, it's, pro it, it's, it's above 100 feet. It's whatever the coordinating altitude is between the helicopter and fast movers like jets. You want to be able to fly in that mode to get somewhere quickly. That is your, I'm out of the threat area, and that allows me to maximize my aircraft cruising speed in an environment that I know I'm not going to be targeted if I fly that high. Again, we have NOE, contour, and low level. Okay. So, and you said that in Afghanistan, you were initially, you were using low level and contour, but then you quickly, and in Iraq, and then you quick, quickly learned that you had to go back to uh, nap of the earth flying. Have you seen an equivalent learning curve for the Russian pilots? From what I've been able to glean from open source data, yes, I think the Russians are, uh, the Russians do learn. We saw this in World War II with their tank and infantry tactics. I, I honestly believe we're starting to see that now in the Ukraine. If for no other reason, they only have a limited amount of KA-52s. I, if I remember somewhere, there was some data that said the Russians have lost about 254 of those helicopters, which some sources claim that's 25% of their, their attacks, of that aircraft's attack numbers. I don't yeah. know if that's accurate, but well, it, it's actually, it's, that's, yeah, that's for their total helicopter loss. Uh, they don't even have, they don't even have that many KA-52s. And so uh, it's, but it's 25% of their total helicopter fleet is what they're. Uh, oh, that's right. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. But nonetheless, the losses have decreased. Uh, you've seen the you've seen the Russians using some new tactics, which they're quite frankly they're really not that new. Uh, they've been around for quite some time. The one I the one I find fascinating there was a great debate about was this idea of rocket slinging attacks, or I believe the Russians call it hit and climb, which is in fact been around for a while, and even the U.S. Army has done it, where essentially you pitch the aircraft up at about a twenty degree angle, fire your rockets and then dive back and then drop the aircraft or dive back down to a safe altitude. Uh, some, some sources say that can increase your range of a rocket as far out as 4,000 meters. Um, of course, the trade-off is when you're firing unguided rockets like that, uh, your circular probability of error or your CPE increases, and that could go up from anywhere. That could go up to as high as 100 meters. But quite frankly, that's really not bad for an unguided rocket if you're trying to shoot it at an assembly area of tanks or uh, an airfield. Well, yeah, if you're letting if you're letting loose 20, 40 rockets at a time, that's- yeah, The other thing you're coming. seeing as well is that the Russian tactics of hovering while engaging targets, they are starting to, they're starting to use a greater standoff range and maximizing the range of their 
the missile, the missile, the guided missiles they do have on their aircraft to avoid becoming a target for anti-tank weapons and man pads. Now, we've also seen you know, that Ukrainians are using, of course, their helicopters too. They don't have K-52s, except for maybe a couple of captured ones. They're mostly using armed uh, Mi-8s, Mi-17s. Uh, with with apparently some success, I've actually seen better low-level flight out of the Ukrainian helicopters than the Russian helicopters, at least in the videos. But and my I can't question, imagine how many Russians and British uh, advisors may in fact be helping them with that. No, we we you know people have a tendency to forget that this war started in 2014, and uh, the United States and United Kingdom living up to its, in some small way, to its agreement of security assurances for the past seven years have, in fact, actually completely transitioned all of the Ukrainian armed forces. But my question is that, that they seem to be able to do this because neither side has air superiority. And I'm not even sure if they have local air superiority in any particular way, although I think sometimes the, the Ukrainians are able to, to get some sort of measure of it. How does having air superiority affect the ability of the helicopters to operate in the combat zone? Well, if I have air superiority, the first thing I can do, if depending again on the threat, in certain circumstances, if I know I don't have a man pad threat, I can certainly fly higher than any small arms fire. But that's always taking a risk. The other thing that that the other thing that air superiority allows me to do is I can certainly mass more aircraft closer to my objective and quite frankly numbers do count again back to the air back to some air assaults we saw early in the early in the war uh having some local air superiority means i don't have to worry about an aircraft threat and i can focus more on the ground threats if, even if it just means massing a number of aircraft on the objectives what if the other side has air superiority <laughs> that changes the dynamics considerably uh, you're going to be flying a lot lower. Um, quite frankly, you probably won't see a lot of air assaults where you have a lot of transport helicopters involved. That would essentially be a turkey shoot for any time a if a fighter pilot can lock onto the target in a helicopter. And let's not kid ourselves, low-flying helicopters using terrain masking, using their, their survivability equipment is a lot harder to kill than a manned aircraft or an unmanned aircraft at altitude. Although there are exceptions, uh, 1991, I seems to come to mind. Uh, there was a Captain Richard Bennett. I think he was flying an F-15. Scored, I think, the only air-to-air -air kill using a laser-guided bomb during during that period. So, hey, it's a dangerous world out there. Uh, sometimes you get lucky, and sometimes the oddest weapon systems in the world become a threat very quickly. Yeah, that, when you talk about the early days of the of the current war in Ukraine. Uh, that reminds me that I was really surprised that the Russians did not first attempt to achieve air superiority, in fact, air dominance, before they started their ground campaign, which, of course, we typically do uh, when we did in both Iraq wars. Why do you suppose they didn't do that? And what was the long-term effect of that? Chris, that's a really good question because that's, I'm struggling with this. One of the things I teach here at the Air University in Maxwell Air Force Base is the date of April 15, 1953. And you would be surprised at the number of Air Force officers that look at me and jokingly say, yeah, what's so important about that? Is it tax day? And my response is, no, it's the most important date in Air Force history because that was the last time that a member of the U.S. military was bombed or strafed by an enemy aircraft. 
and the ability for coalition and or just U.S. Air Forces to have that local air dominance provides a lot more flexibility to Army and Marine helicopter aviation operations than if we didn't have it. I can only imagine is that somewhere is that there's a breakdown between cooperations between the Russian Air Force and the Russian Army in coordinating because I cannot because that is that goes really completely against their Cold War doctrine that they used in the Soviet Union. So I'm I'm actually struggling with why this is happening. All right. So based on that, based on our, your observations so far about the use of uh, Russian and to a lesser degree, you know, because we haven't seen that much of it, but we know that they're there, Ukrainian helicopters in the face of a multi-layered threat, which goes everywhere from 7.62 millimeter machine guns up through the most advanced uh, uh, surface to air missiles that are out there, the S-300s, the S-400s. What do you see as happening, likely happening, oh, let's say over the next six months as mud and winter begins to set in in Ukraine? Well, certainly the weather always plays an, a, a, as, a, as an advantage and disadvantage to both sides. If you look at it from the, if you look at it from the, the mud, as you talked about, uh, that certainly limits the ground mobility, even of modern armored personnel carriers and tanks. So the battlefield is going to become a little more static, and there may in fact be a greater use of rotary wing aircraft on both sides to overcome that problem alone. It would also mean, though, if, if, if I'm making the assumption that the Russians are learning, and so are the Ukrainians as well, let's not kid ourselves, you will probably see a greater integration of combined arms, uh, suppression of enemy air defenses, more jamming, because those helicopters are going to become more valuable as the weather closes in and creates this, if for lack of a better term, this World War I battlefield that a soldier from, from Austria or Hungary, Germany, or the Russian army would have looked at in 19, 1917 and said, what changed? And the helicopters would, pour, would fill the role of, uh, of the Red Bad Baron and, uh, and Frank Luke and, so, and, those, uh, and those people. But potentially. The question that really people should be, at least from my mind, should be asking is, not how many helicopters have you lost? But what combat capability the helicopter brings if you were not to have any other system on the battle space? And, for the, and, and believe me, helicopters are not cheap anymore. We've gone away from the old Hueys and the old MI8s that, while they were technologically advanced for their time, we've moved on to aircraft across the spectrum that are approaching the cost of some jet fighters. Maneuver, intelligence, fires, all of those things, even sustainment, command and control, uh, back. Yeah, the helicopters operate in a, very, in a very dangerous environment, but quite honestly, they've always operated in a dangerous environment. 3,000 helicopters lost in Vietnam, uh, nearly 300 plus helicopters in the Afghan-Russia war, and certainly the 200 helicopters lost by coalition forces in Afghanistan and Iraq, although the latter were mostly for accidents, is really not that unusual. I think we're just having to have that paradigm shift and we may be going back to wars where high casualties between two, two Western-like states with equal militaries may not become the rarity, it may become the new norm. With that, 
Can you give us a closing thought for what that means for conventional or regular warfare now and in the future? Yes, not to sound flippant, but maybe dusting off some of those Cold War manuals that we threw out when coin became all the rage after the early 90s. Some of those tactics, those techniques, those doctrinal manuals, taking a good hard look at them, seeing how we can, and many are, by the way, it's not fair to say nobody's doing that, many are, but taking a look at how we can now integrate maybe some of that methodology of the Cold War tactics and operational design and integrating that with modern systems, particularly, uh, I love attack, I love talking about attack helicopters with manned and unmanned systems combined. Maybe going forward, that is the future of heli combat helicopter aviation. So no, I don't think the helicopter is going the way of the horse-mounted cavalry. I think there's a big future for it. We just have to keep adapting to the modern battlefield to squeeze every dime and every resource we can get out of the rotary wing fleet. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Jason. And uh, we'll hope to have you again on, an, on a future episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Chris, thank you as always. And thank you listeners for sticking with us on this podcast. And join me next time where I'll look some more at whether or not conventional warfare is just a one-off in this current Ukrainian war, or whether it's a harbinger of the future in the ancient art of modern warfare. <laughs>